Take your Bibles, church, and turn to Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. That's where we're going to start this morning. Then we're going to go back, and then we're going to go forward, but that's where we're going to kick off. And let, me, let me begin with this this morning. If you did not come here expecting to hear from God today, what's well, your fault? Because God will speak. It depends on us to prepare ourselves to, to be ready to hear when God talks to us, whether it's through song or through his word or whatever we do. So I pray that every week, every one of us prepares to hear from God, that we come here expecting to hear from God. Y'all, we can hear from God from the absolute worst preacher ever if we go in expecting that God will speak to us when his word is presented. And even the worst preacher in the world, if he preaches scripture, will speak God's word to your heart if you're expecting it. So, that's my commercial for this morning, that, uh, that you come here expectantly. We have entered the, the crazy season, right? If you're a NASCAR fan, do we have any NASCAR fans here? I haven't heard any too much about it. I used to be, oh, Mike, you're, you're okay. Uh, we got one, well, Mike, then Mike knows what I'm talking about when I talk about the silly season. Silly season in NASCAR is... Uh, when they start swapping drivers, and, and, and I used to be in the NASCAR, and I'm, I'm not anymore because my favorite driver uh, let me down, so uh, I just, I never picked it up. But uh, we are in the silly season in America in politics, right? No, I'm not going to tell you who to vote for. I'm not even going to tell you who I'm voting for. If you're, you're friends with me on Facebook, you probably already know, but that's not the point. The point is, we hear so much right now about leadership selection, who we're going to vote for, the, the election results, national preservation. It, depending on who you talk to, if this person gets in office, the, it's over for the country. And it doesn't matter which person they're talking about, it's pretty much the, the, same, uh, the same song from both sides, right? Well, this morning, we are going to talk about Jesus and his kingdom. See, the reality is this kingdom will fail. Not, not this kingdom of Jesus's, but the American kingdom will fail. It, it probably won't be Hillary Clinton that ruins it. It probably won't be Donald Trump that ruins it. It may be three, four, five hundred years away, but the reality is this kingdom will fail. Why? Because someday all kingdoms built by men will fail. There will be one kingdom that will last, and that is Jesus' kingdom. Jesus' kingdom will never fail. The Romans thought that their empire would last forever. The Greeks thought that their empire would last forever. The Persians thought it. The Babylonians thought it. The Hittites thought, uh, thought it. How many of you have heard of the Hittites? A handful. Good. Good job. Uh, the rest of you are going, who? Exactly. A couple of thousand years from now, very likely, if Jesus tarries that long, there will be people that will say, the Roman Empire failed, and the British Empire failed, and the American Empire failed, and he'll ask, how many of you have heard of the American Empire? And about 10% will raise their hands, because that's just the way with anything man-made. I promise you, it will fail. But Jesus' kingdom will not. And this morning, we're going to look at how we are servants of the king before we are citizens of a country. 
I'm not going to stand up here and tell you not to vote. I'm not going to stand up here and tell you that your vote doesn't matter. I'm not going to tell you anything like that. I'm going to tell you to be as involved as you possibly can be with the issues of today, specifically and particularly the moral issues in our country. But I am going to tell you that all of that pales in comparison to our status as citizens of the kingdom of God. That is our focus. Matthew's gospel is where we're going to be for the next four to five weeks, looking at Jesus' kingdom in Matthew's gospel. Matthew is extremely kingdom-focused. He talks about it a lot. Uh, Jesus talked about it a lot, but Matthew, that's one of his favorite uh, parts of what Jesus says to quote. Very kingdom-oriented and written to particularly Jews who were waiting for this kingdom, waiting for their Messiah, waiting for somebody to come along and build up Israel into what it was when David and Solomon were king. That's what they were waiting on. That's why they would ask questions like, are you, are you ushering in your kingdom today? You know, that, that's, that's, that's why they, the disciples asked these questions. That's why they uh, ushered Jesus in at the beginning of Holy Week, singing, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They wanted a king. And Jesus tells them what his kingdom is about throughout Matthew. But especially in Matthew 4, 17, he says, Jesus does, or Matthew does in recounting what Jesus said, from then on, Jesus began to preach, repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, that's our verse this morning, but I want to add a little verse here uh, on, to the side. John 18, 36, Jesus also said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants were, would fight. And that was in response to Pilate asking him questions. Are you a king? I am a king, but my kingdom is not of this world. So we as Christians need to understand that Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. That's not what we are to be focused on right now. The most important place for our hearts and our minds is the kingdom of God. But we need to go back a little bit. We need to talk about Jesus' lineage and his identification for just a second. So we're going back to the first part of Matthew. Matthew 1.1, you can turn there if you want to, shouldn't be more than a, a couple of pages back. Matthew opens up his gospel by saying the historical record of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew was not stupid. Matthew was smart but he was also spirit-led. He opens his gospel by saying this because he wants to get two things specifically in this verse across to the people of, who are reading. First of all, Jesus is the son of David. He is of that promised kingly line that we uh, read about in 2 Samuel 7, 13 and 16. Here, Nathan has confronted David about his sin with Bathsheba, told him what was going to happen, but also tells him that your son will sit on the throne forever. You will have a perpetual kingdom, David. And Matthew is telling his readers, Jesus is that perpetual king. So it's kind of understandable that the Jews were looking for this guy that was going to come and reinstitute uh, re uh, this grand kingdom, this grand empire of Israel. But they kind of missed the kingdom he was talking about. Matthew also says of Jesus that he is the son of Abraham. He is the promised blessing. If we go back to Genesis chapter 12, verse 2 
especially, but verses 1 through 3, where we see the promise to Abraham that he will be blessed and be a blessing, and he will, through him, all nations will be blessed. He wasn't talking about a country. He wasn't talking about an empire. He was talking about one man, and Matthew says, this is that man. Here is the guy. Here is the perpetual king. Here is the blessing to all nations. And Matthew goes on in various descriptions of Jesus to call him Emmanuel, God with us. Not only is he the son of David, perpetual king, not only is he uh, son of Abraham, the promised blessing, but he is the son of God, very much God in the flesh, Emmanuel. He calls him the suffering servant. Emmanuel and suffering servant both hearken back to Isaiah. Uh, son of man goes back to Daniel. Messiah goes back to numerous Old Testament books. All of these terms are how Matthew identifies this man, Jesus, and tells them, here is your king. All of these things. So what does Jesus' kingdom look like? Or, or maybe what, what does Matthew say about the kingdom? He uses three different words. Kingdom, or phrases rather. Kingdom, kingdom of heaven, and kingdom of God. Now these things are all pretty much synonymous. You can find some nuances of meaning here and there, but for the most part, they just mean the same thing. Matthew is clear that this is all about God and what God is doing on earth through his heavenly given son. This kingdom, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, has a particular aspect to it, though. See, it, it's, it's, it's an already not yet kingdom. Now, you may have heard that phrase before. Preachers use it a lot and probably don't explain it as well as they should, and I'm probably not going to explain it as well as I should this morning, but I do want you to get a, a bit of a hint about what we mean. Already, not yet. The kingdom is here. The kingdom is established, but it's not concrete yet. Or, or rather, it is concrete, but it's not fulfilled. It, it, ex it exists, but it doesn't exist as it someday will. It is it is experienceable, but it's not really visible. It has already happened. Jesus said, repent. What's our verse? 417. Repent, for the kingdom of God is near, has come near, is at hand. It's right here. The kingdom's here. And the folks are looking around going, I don't know what you see, Jesus, but I still see Rome. I still see a lot of things that don't fit the kingdom. And Jesus says, it is here because it's already happened. But there's more going to happen. One day, we've read the end of the book, right? We, we know, we know the, the, the punchline. The, the end of it is Jesus comes back and he establishes his kingdom fully, completely, and eternally. Jesus will come back. The kingdom will be fulfilled. We inhabit it now, the kingdom, as Christians. We inhabit the kingdom but we inherit it later. It's here, we're a part of it but, in, but one day we will get the full benefit of it. Now, the kingdom is not a political entity. It's not a country or a political party. The kingdom isn't America. The kingdom is the people of God. The kingdom is those in whom Jesus dwells. The Holy Spirit lives. That is the kingdom. 
That is the kingdom that Matthew talks about. And that is the kingdom that Jesus is announcing when he says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. So it's the already, not yet kingdom. This morning we are going to focus on the already kingdom. And we're going to look primarily, go through quickly the entire Sermon on the Mount this morning. Sermon on the Mount begins in chapter 5 of Matthew with the Beatitudes. It ends at the end of uh, uh, chapter 7. Jesus teaches things that just really blow people's minds because he tells them, you've heard it said, but I tell you. You've done it this way, let me tell you a better way. You, you think you're, you've got the letter, let me tell you the spirit. So he's, he's doing that throughout these chapters, and this is the kingdom we live in. We live in the already part of Jesus' kingdom. There is a not yet. We live in the already. So what does that look like? What does that mean for you and for me to live called out? Remember, that's our series. That's our theme. Living called out over the next couple of months. Well, actually, uh, more than that because we'll do a Christmas series. We'll hit a couple of things for Thanksgiving, and then we'll pick back up with uh, Luke, actually, in January. And we'll see Jesus' church as we move through the Gospels. Matthew will skip Luke. Uh, will skip Mark because Mark kind of just is 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 the Cliff Notes version of uh, Matthew. Jump to Luke and John. We'll see Jesus' church through the Gospels, but all of this is the already kingdom, the right now. So what does that look like? The already kingdom requires righteousness. If you've never just read through the Sermon on the Mount, three chapters, five, six, and seven, do that. Read of the righteousness that is a part of the kingdom. Chapter 4, he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand or is near. Then uh, chapter 5, we immediately see him gather his disciples around and start teaching them. And he is teaching them righteousness. But then we question, we wonder, we should, what does that righteousness look like? Maybe we ask the question, what are the ethical standards of this kingdom that Jesus has set apart? That's what the Sermon on the Mount reveals to us. If we're living called out, we've talked about the Old Testament, uh, how they lived called out, how they were drawn as a people from Abraham, and how God worked in the lives of a nation to call out his people. Now we begin to see, all right, this is the kingdom. He's, he's got it set up. He's drawn out his people. Now he calls it a kingdom, and it's a kingdom that doesn't fit the idea of a kingdom that we're used to. So what does it look like to be a kingdom of citizens, a kingdom of servants, rather, subjects, when we live in a world that doesn't look like the kingdom that Jesus describes? We have standards. We have ethics. We have righteousness. So it begins in chapter 5 with the Beatitudes. And he tells us that a humble status exists in the kingdom. Christians, this is for us. Christians, this is how we should live in the kingdom. Let me remind you, I'm not talking about the kingdom of America or the, 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 the country or anything. I'm talking about kingdom of Christians because this applies whether you live in the freest country on earth, America, or you live in the most despotic country on earth, in the Middle East or the Southeast Asia. It does not matter your politics. It does not matter your president or your emperor or your king or your dictator. We are called to a different standard than everyone else around us, and Jesus begins to set that out 
in the Beatitudes, and he calls for humility in every situation. He tells us in Matthew 5, verses 3 through 12, that the, the humble status of the kingdom includes poor spirits. And some of these are going to be on the screen, and some of them aren't. Don't worry about it. Uh, jot notes if you'd like to from what's up there. Poor spirits is the first one. Dependence on God. We are mourners. As we go through this, I would ask you to raise your hand, but I won't. I'll get you to circle. If you're taking notes, I want you to circle all of the ones who sound puffed up and prideful and beat their chest and talk about how great they are. Circle all those, okay, as, as we go through. Poor in spirit, dependent on someone else. Mourners. Jesus is describing his, his subjects, right? Mourners. They're mourning for their sin. That they are not where they're supposed to be. Meek positions or gentle positions. Su uh, submissive. Hungry and thirsty. They crave right living. Hunger and thirst for righteousness, Matthew tells us. They are merciful. Remember, mercy for us, receiving mercy, is not getting what we deserve. But if we are merciful, then we are not giving, is what we think, we're not giving what somebody else deserves. I'm going to turn that around on you and say merciful in the kingdom looks like forfeiture of rights to what you think you deserve. I deserve this. Give it up. Give up that right to that. Merciful. Peaceful spirits. We surrender our right to win. Arguments. Disagreements. Matthew says, or Jesus says, endure persecution. Let me tell you right now, today, let me tell you 1,000 years ago, and let me tell you 1,000 years from now, if you live to kingdom standards, you will be persecuted. If you're thinking, well, I've never suffered persecution, then how are you living? Have you never done anything to be persecuted for? Then there might be an issue. If we have not been persecuted for our faith, are we living up to kingdom standards? Because even in the freest country on earth, y'all, we will be persecuted for our faith. Religious liberty is not gone. We may not be persecuted yet directly by our government for our faith, though we can begin to point at some uh, particular circumstances where that's happening. But even at our freest, even at, at our uh, most liberal religiously, if we are not offending our friends and our neighbors by our faith, not on purpose, not because we're jerks about it, but because we live to certain standards, if we are not offending people in that way, if we're not being persecuted, are we living up to the standard? Endurance of persecution. In the kingdom, we must fight for last place. It's counterintuitive, right? I watched LSU football last night. I didn't root for last place. I didn't root for Southern Miss. Say, come on, guys, you know, I want you to do, I want you to come out on top because, no, I rooted for LSU, and I was thankful for the 45-10 score at the end of the game. Wish they'd scored a couple more. It's counterintuitive for me as a Christian to say, I'm going to fight for last place. But what did Jesus say? The last will be first, and the first will be last. God's economy is not our economy. Wealth is not how much you have, but how much you give away. We fight 
for last place in the kingdom. That is the humble status of the kingdom. There's also an ethical distinction of the kingdom. We look different from everybody else, or we're supposed to. And no, I'm not talking about the way you dress, though that may have some, you know, have, your dress may have some implication on that. What I'm saying is we are different from the rest of the world. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 13 through 16, that we are salt and light. Salt purifies. Light exposes. We, we've gotten in our minds because of the way we use salt that we're supposed to add flavor to the earth, add flavor to people. Y'all, there's plenty of flavor in the world without we, us trying to add to it, okay? Uh, I mean, go to, go to New Orleans, you'll see flavor. Go to San Francisco, you will see flavor. Uh, we don't need that kind of flavor. What we need is purity. We need purification. Salt primarily was used as a, uh, a, a purification, almost a medicine sometimes, to get out uh, rot and to get out uh, microbes and to keep microbes from getting in so that food wouldn't rot. They didn't put salt on their meat so it'd taste better. They put salt on their meat so it wouldn't rot. Christians are here so that our country doesn't rot. Christians are here so our world doesn't rot. But we, when we have lost our flavor, we are good for nothing. When we have lost the ability to purify because our own lives look like everybody else's, then we no longer are salt worth anything but to be thrown on a gravel street and driven over. We are here to purify and to expose. Uh, ethical distinction, the second one is we are called to perfection in chapter 5, verse 48. We are called to completion. Yes, I, I know I can't be perfect. God's not saying don't sin. God, say, God is saying, be complete. Get everything that you need. Completion requires me to spend time in his word, to spend time in prayer, to spend time at church among fellow believers, learning and being sharpened as iron sharpens iron, to spend time evangelizing the lost, to spend time helping the poor, to spend time helping the needy. Completeness is being everything that a subject of the kingdom is supposed to be and nothing that the subject of the kingdom is not supposed to be. We spend too much time, I'm afraid, trying to be good citizens and not enough time trying to be good subjects. We want to be good citizens of our country, and we should. That can never take the place of being subjects of the king. What are we, what, what's it worth if we gain a whole country but lose our souls? Perfection, completion. Ethical distinction number three is we are to be forgiving. 6, 14 through 15 tells us that. Forgiving regardless of the circumstances. It does not matter if the person deserves forgiveness. I didn't ask you. Neither did Jesus. Or maybe I should say, Jesus didn't ask you. So I can't. I don't care who offended you. We forgive regardless. We are generous, chapter 7, verses 7 through 11, regardless. And this is hard for me. I, I know I'm not going to give him money. I don't know what he's going to do with it. Hmm. Jesus proud that I was careful with my money? Nope. Jesus wants me to be generous. Wants me to be giving. Wants me to be loving. 
and really we just leave the results to him. Now, y'all are thinking, oh, well, I've got to give money to everybody I see. Well, I, no, I, I think Jesus wants to be smart, too, since I, I feel like I need to camp out on this and just for just a second. Buy them food if they say they're hungry. You can't sell a quarter pounder with cheese and get cigarette money for it. So, you know, buy them food. Give them a job. Feed them. Help them. Do something. But we are so concerned so many times that what we do is going to be misused, that we do nothing. And I'm, I'm having trouble finding that in Scripture. We are generous as a kingdom. But, God, but Jesus goes on and says, well, what does it look like to not be properly aligned to the kingdom? Hearts not properly aligned in the kingdom look like a number of things. Those hearts have anger. Verses five, uh, verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 22. Anger that results in sin. Jesus never says, God never says, Scripture doesn't say don't be angry. He says don't let the sun go down in your anger. Do not be angry and sin. Anger is emotion, an emotion, and that emotion is given by God, and oftentimes that anger leads to something helpful, but not if we allow it to lead to sin. A heart not properly aligned in the kingdom has lust in it. Jesus equates that to adultery. Adultery, the one thing he says that you may divorce for, and hold on, we'll get there in just a second, and it's not even an act, but a thought. So we can't say, well, my little lust here, little lust there is not a big deal, because it is. Hearts not, a properly, not properly aligned in the kingdom lead to divorce. Divorce is the thing the church does not speak out about enough, I don't believe. Or I do believe. And I know I'm going to step on some toes and make some people upset. Well, you don't know my situation. You're right, I don't. But I do know the scriptural situation. And the scriptural situation is that Jesus never required divorce. Never. He said you may, but it is not a requirement. And re divorce is always a result of somebody's sin. Period. And we're not going to get into personalities on whose sin it was, but I'm telling you, it's always the result of sin. And I can't think of anybody that I know personally that would ever say, man, that divorce was the best thing I've ever been through. Boy, that was great. I'm going to get married two or three more times just so I can get a divorce. Nobody. Because they knew he knew, God knows, divorce was never the plan, and it's never a heart aligned with the kingdom. False oaths in uh, chapter 5, verse 37. Tell the truth. Be honest. When you're caught, you're caught. But don't lie about it again when you've already been telling lies once. Uh, oh, Mark Twain has a great quote that I just had on my head and then I forgot. But basically, you know, it's, it's easier to remember the truth. You don't have to remember one story. Start telling lies. You've got to remember all the ones you told. And who did I tell it to? Oh, no, I put it, this, and this, and be honest. Retaliation, verse 39 of chapter 5. This relates to personal attacks. The, the, the turn the other cheek. Have you ever noticed that it says turn the right cheek? If he, if, rather, if he, if he slaps you on uh, the right cheek, turn the other one. 
Think about this for a minute. In these days, left-handedness, sorry, honey, was not smiled on. If you were left-handed, you were a little, something. there was an issue. As a matter of fact, if you attacked someone and hit them with your right hand, and you hit them on the left cheek, right, correct, you could be fined. But if you backhanded them, and you got them on the right cheek, you could be double fined. Why? This was an attack. This was an insult. Now, what does Jesus say? If you are struck on the right cheek, if you are backhanded, if you are attacked and insulted, give them the other one. Do not retaliate in your personal, in, in these personal attacks. No, this is not an argument against being a soldier. This is not an argument, aren't an argument against war. This is personal relationships. This is us saying, I deserve revenge. But he's already said, don't retaliate. So then I must, you insult me, hit me again. That's our response. And then lastly, a heart not properly aligned in the kingdom has a hatred for his or her enemies. You can't get away with just loving the people you love. You've got to love the people you don't like. And you can't just get away with loving the people that don't, you don't like. You've got to love the people that don't like you. And you can't just get away with loving the people that don't like you. You've got to love the people who hate you. And you can't just get away with loving the people who hate you. You have to love the people who want to kill you. That's what our missionaries do. They go into countries all the time where the people don't just dislike them, don't just hate them, but want to kill them. And what do they do? They love them. Well, but only a handful of people are called to be missionaries, right? Wrong. Matthew 28, 19, 20. Acts 1.8, we are called to be missionaries. You may never go overseas, you may never go into a hostile country, but if you are not living your faith to kingdom standards, you won't be persecuted. If you are living your faith to kingdom standards, you will be persecuted. Therefore, every day of your life should be you living the gospel in a hostile community. Bible, y'all. I'm just telling you what it says. Hatred of enemies. Last thing that we see in the kingdom as we live called out is prayer and intimacy. We see prayer and intimacy in the kingdom. We pray without pretense in chapter 6, verse 5. Jesus is showing us how to pray because that's what the disciples asked for. He shows us that we pray without pretense. We don't go to the throne of God as if we've got something great to offer. We go because we understand we have nothing to offer. We pray with simplicity, verse 7 of chapter 6. We go to God and say, you know what? I'm not going to impress you with my big words. I'm not going to impress you with scripture quotations from memory, not saying don't pray scripture. As a matter of fact, I strongly encourage you to pray, to, uh, to pray scripture. 
but don't go thinking you're going to impress God because he wrote the book. So, you know, your ability to memorize it and quote it back to him is not going to just, well, good job, Michael. No. Go to him in simplicity. The model prayer is a simple prayer, and yet it covers everything it needs to cover. You, you do the model prayer, don't pray the prayer out of rote repetition, because that's what he's saying don't do. Isn't it funny? Don't babble on and, and do rote repetitions like the pagans do, and what do we do? Thank you, Jesus. Rote repetition. I'm good if I just pray the Lord's Prayer. No, you're not. Pray like this. Don't pray this. Pray with simplicity. Pray with sincerity. Mean it. I've heard prayers, and I, I, I think, that was beautiful. Do you even know what you said? Do you have any idea? Because we didn't hear sincerity in the prayer. Did they mean it? Possibly. But when you don't talk like that to begin with, but then you pray like that, is that praying with simplicity? Is that praying without pretense? Is that praying with sincerity? Go to God sincerely. Verse 10 of chapter 6, pray for God's will. When we pray, we pray for God's will to be done, not mine. That's a kingdom prayer life. That's God working through his people in the kingdom. And we pray with expectation, verse 11 of chapter 7. Pray with expectation, knowing that the God who loves you more than anybody else has ever loved you in your life is going to give you more than anybody else in your life could ever give you. Your dad gave you what you needed. What do you think your heavenly dad's going to do? That's what God is saying, so we pray with expectation. So we see throughout the Sermon on the Mount that the already kingdom is to be lived right now. This is not some abstract idea. That's why I said it's concrete. It's not the kingdom, oh, this is, wow, pie in the sky, but when we get to heaven, then we can live the Sermon on the Mount. He wasn't talking to dead people. He was talking to live people. Now we live the kingdom. We see that when our commitment is demonstrated, our commitment to Jesus, our commitment to the kingdom is demonstrated, not talked about. Chapter 7, verses 24 through 27, whoever hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a sensible man. You do what he says. I heard, and I may have used this example before, it seems like I did here, uh, Francis Chan talking about his daughter and, and, and just the absurdity if he said, told his daughter, go clean your room, and she went and got a group of her friends together so they could together in her room study what her dad meant about cleaning her room and come back three hours later and say, Dad, we've discussed cleaning our room, and we think what you meant was to clean, like to, to organize, to, to disinfect, to, to, to uh, pick up the room, our place, our, our, where we live, where we exist. Dad, it's amazing how you, how you communicated to clean our room. And Dad says, did you clean your room? Oh, no, sir. But we know exactly what you meant by it because we studied it for hours. Clean your room. Christians, clean your room. Let's talk less about what God told us to do and do more what God told us to do. 
Commitment is demonstrated, not talked about. And then lastly, fruit is produced. It is visible. It is not hidden. 17, uh, 7, 15 through 20. Bad trees produce bad fruit. Good trees produce good fruit. What's your fruit? Good trees produce fruit. If you have no production, what are you doing? If you have bad production, what are you doing? Fruit is produced. But true kingdom fruit is the salvation of the lost. Something like less than 5% of Christians have ever shared their faith with anybody else. Something like many churches are baptizing less than one or two people per year. What are they doing? Where's the fruit? Uh, yes, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, against such things there is no law. Got it, perfect, but fruit of the people is other Christians, other subjects coming into the kingdom. What are we doing? This morning, maybe you're not producing fruit because you aren't anyone's fruit. Maybe Maybe you've not understood what it means to be a part of the kingdom. Christian, I've told you this morning what it is to be a part of the kingdom of Jesus. But if you're an unbeliever this morning, all this stuff is not only maybe hard to understand, it is impossible to live by without the Holy Spirit. This morning, you can have that Holy Spirit. You get him as soon as you trust Christ as Savior. Well, Michael, how do I trust Christ as Savior? What does that even mean? What am I being saved from? The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So you need to be saved from your sin. You need to be saved from an eternity of destruction. We think destruction happens once and it's over, but no, you will be destroyed for eternity. We need to be saved from that because the wages of our sin is death, that eternal destruction. But God provided a gift through Jesus Christ our Lord. We can overcome sin. We become a part of the kingdom. I mean, why do we have ethical standards? Because sin cannot be a part of the kingdom. But, but, but I can't fix my sin. You're right, but Jesus can. You don't get to announce your uh, ability to be a part of the kingdom. I just, today I declare myself member of the kingdom. Knight Michael, Sir Michael, no. I am made a part of the kingdom through the gift of Jesus Christ, through salvation, through Jesus who died for us even while we were sinners, died for you even while you were a sinner, so you can be a part of this kingdom. Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. It does not matter who you are. It does not matter what you've done. It does not matter your life right now. Call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. See, the kingdom is for everybody. See, that's, that's the beauty. There's no one that's told you cannot be a part of the kingdom. Oh, there will be a day when you no longer have the opportunity to be a part of the kingdom. But can you hear me? 
you have an opportunity to be a part of the kingdom. If you're alive right now, seems like everybody in here, then today's your shot. But I can't guarantee tomorrow. So Christian, how you living? What are you doing? Unbeliever, what are you waiting on? Be a part of the kingdom. Pray with me. Lord, I thank you, God, that you... Lord, your, your, your yoke is easy. We, we read these things and we think, oh, there's just no way, but there is. Why would you say the yoke is easy if it's not? Because, Lord, you gave us the Holy Spirit the day we trusted you. And so these things are, are ours for the doing. They are ours for the taking. So, Lord, as, as, we, as we study, as we hear, we just, we, we just think, God, I can't. And we are so, so right. But we also know you can through us. How can we be complete? How can we be perfect? You through us. How can we love those who are our enemies? Because you do it through us. How can we forgive? Because you do it through us. How can we mourn our sin? Because you do it through us. How can we hunger and thirst for righteousness? Because you do it through us. God, we do all things that you call us to through your power. Lord, this morning, may we as Christians fall on that. Trust that safety net of your Holy Spirit. And we say, I can't, but you can through me. But God, the same thing happens this morning for an unbeliever, someone who's never trusted Jesus as their Savior. How can I do it? Because the Holy Spirit draws me. So God, I pray that people will respond to the Holy Spirit drawing this morning. If there is an unbeliever within the sound of my voice, I know for a fact you are drawing, Holy Spirit. So I'm asking, praying for you, unbeliever. Come to him today. Don't wait. Speak to us, Lord. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So what's your decision? Do you need to follow Christ this morning? Trust him as your Savior. Do that. Come talk to me. Do you need to make other decisions? Join our church. Be baptized. Do you need to commit, Christian, to being a part of the kingdom? Fully a part of the kingdom. The altar is open for you to pray. What do you need to commit to him? But for the next couple of minutes, as we stand, Donald, as you lead us, let's do business with God. Stand and sing.